0: I've titled this message, Love Versus Hate. Love versus Hate. Also want to just kind of tag on that announcement Joe gave about the youth rally. Be there, June 23rd, 2 p.m., Youth Temple for Bridge Fest. Ryan Reese is a powerful communicator. It's going to be like, almost like a supplement to Vertical Identity, another amazing outreach. You don't want to miss that. And the Friday night before Bridge Fest, Ryan Reese is actually going to come here and give a message to you guys to encourage you and exhort you so that we're all prayerful towards the outreach that 23rd. So if you have a friend that doesn't know Jesus, this would be a great thing to invite them out. Just say like, hey, let's go hang out at the beach and let's do that all day. And there's a concert at night, but we could go to this free youth rally, get some ice ice cream in Asbury Park at Coping Creamery, which has the best ice cream, in my opinion, in New Jersey. So all kinds of cool stuff. So be praying about that. Okay, we're going to read the passage. We'll pray. And guess what? Yes, we will dive in. Jesus said, You have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, Go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so. Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we pray for... A night to remember as people come in with bitterness, different burdens, Lord, that they've received from the world because the world beats us up. And because of that, we want to guard ourselves and protect ourselves. We're insular. But we pray, Lord, that the gospel is more powerful than the hate that's in the world. And tonight, Lord, you would transform our hearts so that we can be the kinds of people that you want us to be. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. So contrary to popular belief, a lot of people believe that Jesus was the first person to say, love your neighbor and love your enemies as well. But it would seem to me that there are a couple other people, maybe Confucius, in Taoism, there's a, uh, a saying that goes, do good to him who has done you an injury. It doesn't seem like, according to what I've been able to research, that Jesus was the first person to say, like, in humanity... To love your enemies. But I would say that it's only through Christianity that loving your enemies is possible. If you think about it, loving your enemies is a crazy concept. Naturally, we want to love people that love us back, but the person that hurts you, what motivation do you have to love that person? If somebody does something terrible, and listen, terrible things happen, right? People curse you out, They make fun of you, tease you, bully you, or maybe even physically harm you. And what motivation would you have to love a person like that? Instead, what you do is, what comes naturally? Protect yourself from those that are gonna cause you harm. If somebody is gonna continually make fun of you or persecute you or whatever, it seems like naturally it makes sense to remove yourself from that person for your own safety. If someone is gonna beat you or if someone is gonna harm you or whatever, it seems like it would make natural sense to not love that person. Instead, hate that person and protect yourself and anyone you know from that person. But in Christianity, not only is it told to us that this is what God can do in a life, but he makes it possible through his power. It's not like he just says, hey, by the way, you should love your enemies. But he gives us the very power needed to love our enemies. And listen, it's something that We're not just talking about here in theory, but we've been able to see it in practice where you've seen on the news people shot in a church, in that same church, going and saying to the shooter that they forgive him. This has happened in recent history. You see, because Christianity doesn't just say it, but it makes it possible to love even your enemies. But I think naturally it's kind of like, but why, why would you do that? And that's because of this. We as believers, followers of Jesus understand this, that we were enemies of God and he loved us anyway. Now, the love that God gives us is not, well, I'll love you because I have to because I'm a Christian. Don't you hate that? Don't you hate it? It's like, I'll forgive you because I'm supposed to. I'm a Christian. What kind of love is that? But the love that God gives us comes from his heart and it's something that you can't conjure up. It's something that you cannot do by yourself. And this is what God wants to give us. I was reading a book by this guy named Dallas Willard, who's a theologian philosopher guy. And he said this. If you think about it, Jesus said to his enemies while he was being taken to the cross, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. But see, when Jesus said that, he wasn't forced to say that. He wasn't thinking, well, you know what? It's about time that I said this because this is gonna be recorded for the rest of human history, so I should say something like this. And he was, he was doing it out of compulsion. But actually, it would have been harder for Jesus to curse out his enemies than to love them because that's who he was. He is love. God is love. And listen, when God transforms your heart, here's what happens. The love that God produces in your heart comes out naturally. And suddenly it suddenly doesn't become hard to love your enemies. But listen, without God, it's impossible. It is impossible for the natural man to simply want to do the things that God requires of us. And this is why we need a new nature. We need a new heart. In fact, we look at some of these things that Christians have said for centuries. Jesus himself has commanded of us. We read all these passages and what we've read tonight about, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. I'm saying, turn the other cheek. Someone asks for your, your tunic, you give them your cloak too. Someone says, hey, why don't you walk with me a mile? You go two miles, you go above and beyond. And we look at that and say, that, well, that's kind of impossible, isn't it? And some other religions might say, that sounds great, you should try doing that. But that's precisely the problem because none of us on her own power, can do this. And unfortunately, even in some churches, people come so that they can be better people. And they think, all right, I've been terrible, and I'm going to make it up to God, and I'm going to be a better person. So I'm going to walk into church. I'm going to do penance. I'm going to pray to a priest, and I'm going to feel better about my life. But that's not what God wants you to do. It's not like God is saying, I really hope they become better people. But Jesus was the better person you needed to be so that he requires nothing of you except your heart. Even atheist Bertrand Russell, who lived in uh, the 1900s, said this. I read his book, um, The History of Natural, uh, Western Philosophy. And in that book, he said this about morals. The Christian principle, love your enemies, is good. There's nothing to be said against it except that it is too difficult for most of us to practice sincerely. Even the atheist Bertram Russell was able to see that this is probably the moral ideal, but we fail to do what God requires. So listen, when you read the Sermon on the Mount, a lot of people do the wrong thing. They're thinking, oh man, the Bible talks about, you know, doing whatever it takes to cut sin out of your life, which is definitely true. The Bible says even pluck out your eye and chop off your arm, all that stuff, right? Like metaphorically, right? The Bible says that I'm supposed to love my enemies. Tell me all these things I have to do. I'm going to go home, I'm going to try really hard try really hard to do what the Bible's telling me to do. It says I got to go two miles when I'm asked for one. It says I have to give my, t- uh, my cloak and my tunic. I have to give all these things, go above and beyond, right? And you go home, you like, I'm really going to try this week. That's not what the Bible says. Because listen, pay attention very carefully. Jesus does not give us new laws to abide by. He gives us love to abide in. So many Christians get this wrong. Like, if you get this one thing, you're going to escape a snare of the devil that so many believers continually fall time and time again in. People think that when Jesus says these things in the Sermon on the Mount, they're going to, like, put these up, right? Like, Ten Commandments, put them in your schools, right? We don't even abide by them in our home, let alone our school, but just put them up there. We'll look at them and like, yes, I'm going to try really hard. This is not what Jesus is doing Saying, you heard it was said, and I got something better for you. You better do these things even more, right? Instead, he's telling us there's a love that we are to abide in. And by abiding in his love, suddenly the good works that he describes are naturally produced in us. So in this section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus shows us the contrast between the heart of the kingdom of God. And the heart of the natural man. And he does this by confronting two different things tonight, two different aspects of worldly wisdom, two different mantras. And the first one is against the mantra to get even. And that's in verse 38 through 42. So he firstly speaks against the thought that we are to get even um, when people wrong us. So let's read it, verse 38. You've heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Naturally, when somebody wrongs you, you want to make them pay. In the Old Testament, King David had a son named Absalom and also another son who unfortunately raped his own sister. And Absalom, seeing this, held that bitterness in his heart for years. And then one day, he decided to take revenge on his brother by killing him. And once he killed him, he fled from the kingdom of Israel for three years because he was afraid of his father, David. He was afraid of what people would think. But this is what comes to us naturally, that Absalom would see the fact that his brother raped his sister and want to take revenge, not an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but to do much more than what was done. This is what we do naturally. It's not an eye for an eye. It's not, you did this to me, so I'm going to do it to you. It's, I want to do so much more to you so you'll never even think about doing anything to me ever again naturally we always want to go above and beyond in the wrong direction we want to make people pay and even worse than what they've done to us so in the old testament what jesus is quoting here an eye for an eye and tooth for tooth which is in the book of exodus and etc this is what is called the law of retaliation according to john wolverd who's a commentator he said this law was given to protect the innocent and to make sure retaliation did not occur beyond the offense so since we naturally want to do more than what was done to us, here it was just kind of a fair, fair thing where if somebody does wrong to you, the exact wrong is done back to them. This is an easy way to be able to make societal judgments in a court system. But Jesus says, listen, when someone does something wrong to you, how about this? Even more than what you've seen in the law. How about you don't even resist an evil person? When somebody slaps you, you turn the other cheek. When someone sues you, you just give it back to them. When somebody compels you, you go farther than what they've asked you to do. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 8 real quick. I want to show you a contrast between Absalom and something else that happened in the same book of the Bible. 2 Samuel chapter 8. In 2 Samuel chapter 8, after David took over the kingdom from Saul, who was the king at the time, and even his son Jonathan had died, so there's no other heir, and David was supposed to be anointed king, there was still somebody left in the lineage of Saul who could have been royalty. And in those days, if there was anybody left of that lineage and you were overthrowing a kingdom, you would kill off any remaining people in that lineage because they might try to rise up a revolt and take the kingdom back. But look at what David says to Saul who had sought him out to kill him many a time. David says in chapter, sorry, chapter nine, not chapter eight, 2 Samuel chapter nine, verse three, it says, is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? Isn't that crazy? David had no obligation to show mercy and love to the household of Saul, but he sought it out. Think of that crazy concept of like actively seeking out ways to show love to your enemies. Not only we're just like, I'll tolerate my enemies. I'll tolerate the people that I don't like. But David was looking for the opportunity to show love. And he didn't even say the house of Jonathan, right? He says the house of Saul. He finds a man in verse, uh, the remaining verse of verse 3. Zeba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. And king said to him, Where is he? And Zeba said to the king, Indeed, it is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, and Lodabar. And so they brought this guy, right? And it says in verse 6, Now Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David. He fell on his face and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth? And he answered, Here is your servant. So David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake, and will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table the king's table, continually. Then he bowed himself and said, what is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? You see, like, when you're so used to being mistreated by the world, you can't understand God's love. It can be the hardest thing to believe. In fact, I think one of the, one of the hardest lies of the enemy to overcome is that you are not worthy of God's love. But this is exactly the thing, the lie that we need to shine the light of the gospel upon and say, I know that I'm worthy of love because Jesus Christ already has died for my sins. And you look upon him. It's just like in the Old Testament. It was as simple as looking upon the serpent, right? While the children of Israel were in the wilderness, it was looking upon the serpent and they would be healed. Looking upon Jesus and you would be saved. That's it. That's it. There's nothing else that you have to do. But Mephibosheth, I think a lot of us can relate with. Why would God love somebody like me? You see, this is why we need to go out and love our enemies. Because those people are the very people that perhaps may feel like they're beyond the love of God. Because we too were enemies of God. And we get to reflect that love back to them. So, let's go through each one of these things. Back to Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says, verse 39, whoever slaps in your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Now, this is not talking about getting punched in the face. The right cheek, as many people in those days were right-handed, would mean that you would get backhanded. It was an insult. You're getting slapped, right? So the, here's a question. If this is more talking about insult, not talking about physical attack, what is your natural response when someone insults you? I think there's three different responses, right? Number one, we insult back. We have to have the perfect comeback. Number two, we defend ourselves. We try to pretend like it's not true. Or number three, we retreat. We find a a quiet spot where we don't have to think about it. We drain it out with music when people insult us, right? But Jesus gives us an alternative to retaliation due to two different aspects. He gives us a different alternative. Don't resist. You don't have to fight back. You don't have to insult back. Why? Because number one, our worth. Number one, our worth. I think the insults that hurt the most are the ones that we actually believe. Otherwise, why would it hurt? You know it's not true. But when people say things to you, And deep down inside, you know they're right. But guess what? If you are a child of God, there's actually a truth deeper than what they're saying. Because no matter what people think, God loves you and has created you for a purpose. And there's no person here that's beyond God's work. Dallas Willard, once again, I want to quote him because it's a great quote. But he kind of talks about how... um, a lot of people don't want to be vulnerable because you're like exposing yourself and then people see like what's really inside. But if your security is in Christ, then we are vulnerable because in the end we're simply invulnerable. There will be one day that we will be part of God's kingdom in its fullness and there there'll be nothing else left to be said of us that will be true. All the sin, every tear, every pain, everything will be wiped away. It'll be gone, removed from the earth. So in this present moment, we can be vulnerable with others because our security is in Christ. So number one, our our worth, and number two, we don't have to insult people back because of our witness. Our goal is that we want to show everybody Jesus. So we're not going to be like everybody else. People say mean things to you, but you're thinking, okay, this person's saying this to me, but like, This person, if they don't know Jesus, they're going to go to hell for all of eternity. I want to be a good example so that that person can know the same forgiveness that I've been able to feel. Now, if they're a believer and they're insulting you, it's the same thing. I don't know why this person's being so terrible, so mean, but that doesn't matter. Because I want to show them Jesus. And I want to represent him well. The second thing Jesus talks about is in verse 40. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. This is speaking of getting ripped off. So in those days, you could take somebody to court and your cloak, your tunic, these are valuable possessions to you. And even if someone could sue you and gain your cloak, your cloak is what kept you warm at night. You would go to bed, you didn't necessarily have blankets, I don't think, so They would have to, even if they were able to win in court your cloak, they'd have to give it back at the end of the night. It was that important. But here, what Jesus is saying is going beyond what's required of you. And who cares if you're ripped off? Why does it really matter? Because you have an eternal inheritance. That's the whole point. People take money from you. People sell things at a higher price than what it really should be bought for. Why does it matter? Why do you care whether or not you're wronged or ripped off? Because don't you understand that everything you have is a gift from God and he's lent it to you? So if that's the case, who cares? You have an eternal inheritance that's set up in the heavens for you. And then lastly, in verse 41, Jesus says, whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. So here this is speaking about Roman soldiers in the day who might say to somebody, any, any normal citizen, hey, Why don't you carry my backpack? Why don't you carry my whatever for a mile? And you were required to do it. But here Jesus is saying, beyond your societal obligations, go two miles. So officer says to you, I need you to carry my backpack for a mile. You're like, cool. Is that it? Because I'm more than willing to go two miles if you want me to. So you have societal obligations, right? Like think about this. Here is... Here is the mark of a transformed heart. Your parents tell you to do chores, and you do more than what they ask you to do. Like, Ashley, you should just do this for fun. Do random chores that your parents don't ask you to do, and just see if you, like, weird them out. Like, blow their mind. What do you want from me? Like, nothing. I just, the Lord has just touched my heart in such a powerful way. I just want to show you love, you know? Like, you're going to weird them out. It'll probably stop, stop you from ever coming back to impact. It's probably true, Right but like, isn't that crazy? Like nobody does that ever. If you just think about like, I think about this all the time. Those of you that start driving, you borrow your parents' cars and you fill it up when they don't ask for you to do that. You clean their car on the inside and the outside for them when they cause the mess and they're worse than you, right? You just do random stuff like that. You're going to blow their minds. Like what happened to my kid? I don't know. The Holy Spirit But here's the thing, like most people don't do that. Even after I say that, like it's like hilarious to think about. Most of us don't do that because it's hard to do that naturally. We're so selfish. We wake up and you're like, tomorrow I'm going to be like the most amazing person ever. I'm going to love everybody. And you wake up and you're like, I'm going to do it tomorrow instead because I'm just really tired right now, right? You're like, I'm going to wake up, I'm going to spend like three hours in the word of God and it's been five minutes. You're like, oh gosh, I don't think I can do this, right? naturally we can't do these things what we need is jesus to touch our hearts and by doing that we're able to do above and beyond what's asked of us so here's the first point of the night if i haven't made it clear already human nature wants to retaliate a transformed nature does not resist human nature wants to retaliate a transformed nature does not resist This is what Jesus exemplified when he did not defend himself when people accused him of wrongdoing that he didn't do. He was silent as a sheep goes before its shearers. Jesus did not defend himself, but he was silent because he knew God had called him to be there. So that's the first error of worldly wisdom, which is to get even that Jesus confronts. The second is Hate your enemy. The natural inclination of the heart is to hate your enemy. We see that in verse 43. You have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be sons of your father in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. And sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. That was an insult because tax collectors were despised people in their day. They stole a lot of money. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so. Therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. So Jesus says, you have heard it was said, hate your enemy. Actually, it doesn't say that in the Old Testament at all. But it said to love your neighbor and by implication, a lot of uh, the Jewish people said, you know what? Naturally, that means that we are to hate those that are not our neighbors. Hate those that are our enemies, especially the enemies of God. So that's what they would do. They would look at other nations and say, we have to hate them because God is against those people. But what Jesus is pointing out is that God himself loves an evil world. So he gives them these different commands. He says, love, bless, do good, and pray for Your enemies like that's crazy right so somebody curses you out bless them instead how about praying for your enemies how many of us do that and not just lord i pray that they realize how wrong they are how terrible they are right but like praying for their good how about those of us that are really jealous people and you have maybe a love interest but there's somebody else that seems to catch their eye And you're like, oh, man, I really hope that they see that I'm the most amazing person in the universe, right? But actually praying for that person. Like, maybe that person would be more happy and, like, maybe they would be better off with that person. I'm going to pray for them. None of us do that, right? Because it doesn't come naturally. But you're praying for, you're blessing, you're loving, and you're doing good actively for your enemy. When's the last time that you thought about or actually carried out love for your enemy? But here's, here's what we do. So this is the natural Christian thing, right? I don't have any enemies. I just have people I just really don't like. Okay. You're playing a semantical game there. But why don't you, let's change it for a second, the people that you just don't like, okay? Have you thought about loving those people? Because check this out. If the Bible says to actively love and do good to people that you would consider your enemy, Why would you not do that to the people that are not your enemy? You just don't like them. Right? So you actually, by changing the terms, you make it worse, not better. By saying these people aren't your enemies, you actually should find it easier to love those people. But you don't. I don't. But once again, that stuff doesn't come to us naturally, which is why our action should never be oh, Alan made me feel terrible. Okay, I'm going to go home and figure out ways I can love my enemy. No, don't do that. Instead, do this. Jesus, I find it impossible to love my enemies. What I need is you to give me your heart and to love that person through me. And if you want to do that, I'm more than willing to do what you ask me to do. And when the Holy Spirit puts on your heart specifically what he wants you to do, you just do it. And pray that it comes to you naturally. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe you have to put your feet to do it. Maybe you actually have to go out and do something. But when God tells you to do something, then you do it. Maybe he's telling you, you know what? You should write a letter apologizing to that person for the wrong that you've done. Well, I didn't really do anything wrong. But God told you to do it. I'm not telling you to do it. God's telling you to do it. So you do it. And then you find, as you're doing, you're like, you know what? That actually wasn't that bad. Because there's a mysterious thing or person called the Holy Spirit who enables you, works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Now, why do we do that? Because that sounds crazy. Because, he gives us the reasons, because the Father himself provides for bad people and loves bad people. God causes it to rain on the just and the unjust. I don't know if you've noticed, but just because there's evil in the world, like there are some bad terrorists out there, that does not mean that they're deprived of food and water and all those resources. It's not like God's like, oh, man, those evil people. So therefore, I'm not going to have it rain there ever again, right? Like God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He does not do it discriminately. So we as well need to love both the people that we love naturally and the people that do not come to us naturally because we were enemies of God. And the second reason besides the fact that the Father shows love indiscriminately, is because there's nothing supernatural about loving those people that love you back. That's not hard. Even tax collectors, even mobsters find that easy. Even the mafia finds it easy to love people that love them back. But to love people that don't love you back, that requires a supernatural touch of the Holy Spirit. This is why it says in Romans chapter 12, verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink, For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is what it says time and time again throughout the Bible. We don't need to take vengeance on our enemies. That's God's job. Our job is simply to love. That's what he's called us to do. Do not be overcome by evil, which means that there is a world system that tells you that this is what you should do naturally. And you're not overcome by that system. Instead, you are overriding it because you have a new system inside of your heart, the system of love. And so how do you do that? Well, you look upon what Jesus has done for you. The more that you recognize that you are a terrible person, we look inside, we see the sin in our own heart, then we realize, how can I ever hold somebody else responsible for the sin that they've committed against me when I've done infinitely worse against a holy and righteous God? And if we're not there, that's what you got to do. You got to go before God and say, Lord, I don't really know if I'm aware of my own sinfulness, but I pray I'm able to see it so you can make me more like you. Because if you don't see your sinfulness, you know what that is? That's called pride. I have no need of forgiveness. I'm good. I don't need God. But when you recognize it, then you're able to stand in his grace. Right? This is what Paul the Apostle said. He said, I am not worthy to be even called an apostle. I'm the least of them. But by God's grace, I am what I am, and his grace towards me is not in vain. And so, because of that, I'm going to run harder and faster and strive harder than everybody else because I am aware that I am just a sinner saved by grace. That's what we all are, right? So listen, you may tonight have bitterness in your heart, and you have to get rid of it. Because Satan will use that in the future if you don't root it out. He will find ways to do this. I've said this again. I've said this a billion times. It's worth saying again. I always think about, like, how in the world do people get caught in all kinds of crazy sin and they blame everybody else? That's, like, the craziest thing to me. Like, if I was ever caught in some, like, crazy sin, like, I hope not, I would I would just feel like I was found out. And I was just like, oh, I'm terrible. Like, I'm a terrible person, Right. But there's some people caught in the middle of sin and they're like, yeah, but you didn't do this. You didn't hold me accountable. You never called me. And you're like, it's happening, right? And I realize when you are bitter, here's what happens. Suddenly, any sin that you do is justified because it's never as bad as what someone has done against you. You feel like totally justified in doing that sin to somebody else because that person did that thing and that's way worse than what you're doing. That's why we have to clean it out. Lord, purify my heart. What's going on inside of me? Lord, am I harboring that unforgiveness towards somebody else? I need to let that go. This is what Jesus calls us to do. He wants us to have that transformed heart. So your second point is human nature hates enemies, and a transformed nature loves enemies. Human nature hates enemies. A transformed nature loves enemies. So in conclusion, this is is it. The last verse. So if you're already discouraged, here's what it says. Verse 48, therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. So if it wasn't hard enough, Jesus says, oh, and by the way, um, you should be perfect just like God. Like that should be your goal. And then immediately you're like, well, that's impossible. That is actually impossible to do. Yeah, But with God, all things are possible. Jesus doesn't just throw this in there like, hey, here's here's like the ideal you'll never be able to reach it. But he's saying you abide in his love and it's possible. Whoever abides in his love does not sin. When you are in fellowship with Jesus, when your heart is touched and right before the Lord, suddenly you're able to step into the nature that he wants you to be in all along. Suddenly these things come naturally suddenly it's like not hard. You're like, wow. Like all those things that were so difficult for the longest time to overcome are not so hard anymore. Some of you tonight, you're struggling with all different types of sin and you're trying so hard to get out of it. You're in bondage to that sin. And here's why it's hard. Because you're still trying in the natural state. And what you need is to abide in his love so that you can overcome it. What does that look like? Well, you let God do it. You let God do it through you. And you don't know how to do that? Well, the first step is to pray. Think about like, Lord, are there areas of my life that you don't have complete victory? Show me how to get there. And he will help you to do that. So maybe it is hate. Maybe it's unforgiveness. Listen, I'm not stupid. And I've been a youth pastor for a long time now. So I can tell you for a fact that the number one reason why people don't come back to youth group is because of judgmental people that, that harbor grudges and unforgiveness towards one another. So maybe you have to make it right. Maybe there are people here uh, tonight that are preventing other people from being in this room tonight because of what you've done to them or the fact that you can't forgive somebody else. And you need to stop that. But it's only possible if you ask Jesus to do it for you. Towards the end of the year, what typically happens is people fall off the radar because you have finals, there's proms, we're going into the summer, people are applying to to colleges, people get jobs, people start driving. It's easier and easier to stop coming back to youth group. So listen, your, your job is to go seek out those people that are lost. Seek out those people that feel like they're enemies of God and say, no, listen, you're not because you're brought near to the cross through his love. Um, a verse I totally forgot about, but I love it. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 14, verse 14. Dave, actually, let's just turn there because I, I mentioned Absalom in the beginning. So Absalom killed his brother, ran away for three years, right? And then, in 2 Samuel 14, 14, after he was banished, Joab has this woman go up to David and pretend to share a story, almost like the same thing with Nathan, saying, hey, this one thing happened when he was talking to Bathsheba and all that stuff. Joab put this woman up to talking to David and giving a similar story about the fact that David was harboring unforgiveness. And so this is what the woman says to David in verse 12. Please let your maidservant speak another word to my lord, the king. And he said, say on. So the woman said, Why then have you schemed such a thing against the people of God? For the king speaks this thing as one who is guilty, and that the king does not bring his banished one home again. For we will surely die and become like water spilled out on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Yet, God does not take away a life, but he devises means so that his banished ones are not expelled from him. I love what the NLT says. God devises ways to bring us back together Back to himself. And that's our job too. Representing God. Being ambassadors of God. Going out into the world and saying, hey, listen, you can be reconciled to God. So why don't we bow our hearts and pray for that right now.